Welcome to Nobody's Perfect. Blech. Let's just start right over. All right. Welcome to Nobody's Perfect, a community built to support, inspire, and empower youth and families everywhere through our mission of breaking down stigma and offering solutions to mental health and well-being challenges we can all face. Nobody's Perfect is a podcast and movement powered by the National Alliance on Mental Illness for Arapahoe and Douglas Counties and funded by NAMI Colorado and Kaiser Permanente. I'm your host, licensed clinical social worker, Amy Staley, and joined by my co-host, Jason Hopkins, and our guest, Sarah Selke. Sarah is a licensed professional counselor who's been a leader in acute care settings in Colorado for over five years. Sarah received her master's degree from the University of Denver in International Disaster Psychology, which is focused on crisis intervention and trauma treatment for local and international populations. She worked abroad at the World Health Organization in Panama and then found her passion working in behavioral health hospitals in Colorado. Sarah is committed to improving access to patient care and supporting the most vulnerable populations in our community. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I've had the pleasure of knowing you over the past 10 years um, and worked with you in a variety of settings, but truly see you as um, an expert in the acute care setting and the leadership that you've um, brought to that in Colorado over the past five years has been amazing. So we're thrilled that you're joining us today. Thank you for yeah. being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So, I mean, again, I'm also thrilled that you're here because we're having this important topic on the heels of two really important topics with our conversations with youth um, who both had their own experience of mental health challenges and both um, experienced those challenges in a uh, inpatient healthcare setting. And as a director of, of those types of settings, I really thought it was important for us to have a conversation with you about, you know, what is acute care? And if you have a loved one that's really struggling that might need inpatient treatment, I think it's important for us to offer some guidance and unpack a little bit more about what can you expect? And, you know, what are some of the common pieces of language that we use in those conversations that really can help guide somebody? So when they get into those difficult spots, they have a little more awareness about, hey, what am I getting myself into here? Yeah, no, I think this is a, I'm so glad to be able to talk about it, to be honest, because even when I started, you know, doing acute care work or working in the hospital setting about five years ago, I also went in pretty blind, sort of what even myself in, in studying my career in that direction to not know exactly what I was walking into. So I love to be able to say from someone who felt a novice just five years ago, you know, what has really I've come to understand about that setting. So I guess the best place to start um, is that when we think about sort of an inpatient hospital, especially whether it's youth or an adult, I think the, the stigma in our minds of what it used to be like this, this idea of an inpatient hospital setting where it's, where it's cold and there's no windows and you feel locked and it feels unsupportive and no one's paying attention to you. There's been so much change, um, okay. I think, over the last many, many years, certainly like the last 20, but even more so in the last five of what what we're really trying to accomplish at that level of care. Um, I think the most important, aside from sort of overcoming that stigma, is also realizing that this is a short-term sort of crisis stabilization um, facility for folks who are really in need of that highest level of care possible. So when we think of patients who, or individuals who are presenting, and for especially for our youth population, if they're feeling um, you know, suicidal or they're feeling, um, have a plan to hurt themselves, 
um, we want to think of can that successfully be treated at an outpatient level of care? Because first and foremost, we don't want to put anybody in a hospital setting unless we have to. But when in, when we're in situations where we really want to keep somebody safe or the parents feel strongly, this patient themselves feel strongly that we need to keep them safe in that moment while we work through some of that stabilization, the inpatient hospital setting is where we go. Um, what would be helpful, I guess, for you guys to really understand from the start of the process through what it's like, or, or what's the, the pressing question, I think, that some of our users. Yeah, so, I mean, I have several questions, so I'm sure we're going to go, like, through a variety of questions, but I think, um, you know, I really appreciate your passion and, and interest in joining us today so that we can explain this, because I think um, most people don't understand and don't know what these levels of care are until, until they're in a situation where they themselves or their loved one might need to access that care. So, you know, even just talking us through, yeah, how does somebody even get to a place where they'd be evaluated for a hospital? Like um, talking through the process of what that looks like. And then once it is determined that somebody might be unsafe unless they go to an inpatient um, unit, what, what might they expect? Yep. Like, yeah, who makes that determination? Where, do you, where does that determination happen? So I'll start with the most common. Um, I think what we see in this, in this makes sense is that the same way that you would walk into an emergency department if you had a broken arm or if you're having trouble breathing is when, you know, how we should be able to think about this system is that if we're having a mental health crisis, whether we're a youth, an adult, anybody, the first place I think families often think of to take their, their kiddos is to that emergency department. Um, it doesn't mean it's the only way to access care, so we'll get into that in a little bit, but I would say that that's oftentimes what we're seeing as the, the starting point for that, let's evaluate this individual, see where they're at with that mental health crisis and make this determination. So if I'm a family and I know that I, you know, I'm talking to my kiddo who's in a mental health crisis, and it can look really different for everybody, it could be a, your kid coming to the table and sharing that they're having a crisis or sharing that they're feeling suicidal, it could also be you know, a kiddo who's at school, who's disclosed to a staff member or disclosed to the school counselor that they're feeling um, like they want to hurt themselves or they're not doing well. Um, so if they end up, if they drive to an emergency department, what happens is that just like in any emergency department, they're going to triage to see what you need in that moment. And if it is a behavioral health need, the next step is actually being seen by a licensed behavioral health professional. Um, that could be in combination with a licensed psychiatrist or a licensed doctor, but really the evaluation often takes place with a licensed professional counselor, a licensed professional social worker, or someone who's really specialized and has a license in behavioral health needs. And they do a full psychosocial assessment for the most part. So it can often be take up to an hour. Um, they would meet with the family and the, the kiddo together and talk through what, what are the presenting problems? What, what is that person experiencing right now in this moment? What have they maybe experienced in the past? What are some of the things that have been going on in their lives? And, and they look at all sorts of uh, parts of that person's presentation. And then from, yeah. Can I just comment on that real quick to interject? Cause I'm somebody uh, who um, at one point in my career um, used to be that person um, for a couple of years, I was doing those evals in the hospital in collaboration with the doctors. And one thing that I've heard a lot from families is my kids said this, I don't understand why they weren't hospitalized or they said this, is remembering that 
that that person has to go off of all the information they have in that moment. And so if they came from school or if they came from someplace and something concretely was said, anything you can do to have that documentation to provide the hospital can be really valuable because if they're, um, if it's just like, oh, well, they said this, so we brought them over here and the doctor and the mental health professional don't have documentation from that collateral, they have to go off of what's in front of them. And so remembering, like, if you are concerned about your loved one and there was a specific event or specific statements that were said that uh, that somebody else heard, whether it be a school professional, whether it be somebody else, anything you can do to help provide that documentation um, because like you said, it is a triage, right? Like they're still in that moment, but they have to go off of what's presenting in that moment. And so making sure if you are really concerned about something, anything you can provide to that person to help inform their decision-making can be really beneficial. Right. I mean, absolutely. And I'll go as far to say that, so I, I work with a lot of, I'm grateful to say that the emergency departments now should be throughout most of the ones, at least in the Denver metro area, should be staffed now with licensed behavioral health professionals in those, whether some of them are tele, so some of them are doing it um, over uh, online, but a lot are actually in the emergency departments there and ready to do those evaluations. And I have the privilege of training some of these individuals. And we're, we're actually saying now, Amy, we're going as far as to say, if we don't have that documentation from the school, we don't have that information, our licensed clinician should be calling. Absolutely be making that extra effort to call and say, hey, this was reported to you. Hey, school therapist. Hey, teacher. And so if we don't have it in writing, we should, as clinicians, be making the best effort to get that information because the whole picture, like you said, is going to help us make the very best determination for this patient. Um, as a clinician myself, as a licensed counselor, I really believe that what you're experiencing, your current presentation and your current symptoms are the most important, but things that are leading up to those current systems. So historical information about who you are and what has led to that matters in terms of my evaluation and what I as a clinician can take into consideration when making the decision for that. Where do we go from here? Right. And I think one, one thing that's really important, if I'm hearing you correctly, is and, and, and I think it's important to validate here is this is not a one-size-fits-all solution. So there, there could be precipitous events that lead up to somebody being in this sort of intake setting or something that's just happened in the moment. Like there are a variety of scenarios that somebody could end up needing this evaluation that may or may not result in an inpatient stay. Yep. And, and what you're saying that I think is so important as an advocate, if it's your child or your loved one, to really be able to keep some documentation around. These are the things that I've experienced, knowing that this person might not be showing up in their best at this moment, but here's some additional information that might be valuable for you to consider as you're doing this intake process. Is, is that, did I hear that correctly? Yes, it, it should be. It should be a conversation. So if I'm going to be honest, and I can't speak for how every behavioral health clinician in the emergency departments functions, but if it were up to me and the teams that we're really training, the, the evaluation should take place with the clinician, the kiddo, and the parents as a conversation and talking through, yes, we're collecting information, but when we have an opinion about where do we go from here, that communication should be directly with the parents, directly with the patient of this is why we're thinking this for this kid. Let's keep let's keep the dialogue open because um, I know there's some situations where parents it can feel really disempowering um, and it can feel scary to sort of 
in a sense, say, here, you're evaluating my kid, and then somehow you're deciding. You just get to make the end-all decision about what happens to my kid from this moment forward. And I want parents to really know that at the end of the day, the job of these clinicians is just trying to keep this kiddo safe. That is that is the first and foremost thing on these clinicians' minds. And the, the conversation and the asking of questions and the gaining as much information as possible is meant to help everyone be on the same page and feel supportive. Now, could it end in disagreement where if a family member, for instance, does not think um, an inpatient level of care is appropriate or thinks my kid really needs to be hospitalized and the clinician maybe does not think that, there are absolutely times where that may happen. But I really hope that parents know that um, it is a conversation, a supportive environment, and you will know exactly what the determination is, the why, the where, if it is an inpatient hospitalization, where is my kiddo going to end up and how can I be a part of that process? Um, and I, I really think that that is the direction we're headed in when it comes to maybe where we started with evaluations in the hospitals to really where we're trying to get to. Um, and so I think, you know, one of the things that's within the power of the clinician at that point is to determine if the, if it, the patient or if the individual who's presenting with, um, you know, suicidal thoughts or with a plan is not safe to go back to their home, right, where they don't feel like they can prevent themselves from hurting themselves or they can prevent um, acting on some of those plans. And I'm, I'm speaking specifically to suicidal ideation, although there's other reasons that someone might meet inpatient level of care. But in this case, um, unfortunately, regardless of whether the parents want or don't want, I think that, you know, what's the outcome for my kiddo is that the obligation of the clinician at that point is to keep the patient safe. And if they feel um, that the patient or the family members wouldn't be willing to go voluntarily to that highest level of care to that inpatient facility. They do have at that time, I mean, the right to write an involuntary 72-hour hold. And really what that means is to say, hey, we want to keep you for further evaluation. We want you to meet with a licensed doctor. We want you to meet, continue to meet with a licensed clinician um, at an inpatient facility while we continue to evaluate day by day um, whether or not it's safe for you to go back home. And, and that really just means it's a 72-hour period for evaluation. It does not guarantee 72 hours within a hospital. It does not guarantee it won't be more than 72 hours within a hospital, but it gives that opportunity to say, in this moment, we're concerned about you being able to stay safe. We really want to make sure that that's at the top of everyone's mind. So we're recommending the 72-hour evaluation period, and we're going to now look for an inpatient hospital um, that both has beds available that serves youth and um, that population within our community. And we start, they stay in the emergency department until that um, communication, until the bed is available, until we can make that transfer. Um, so that can sometimes take an hour, that can sometimes take a day, um, especially for our kiddos. Yeah, and one thing I just want to add again, knowing what we've heard from the community and what I've observed as a, a community-based clinician is, so let's say um, an unsafe statement was made in the school setting um, such that there was a decision and, you know, an SRO put somebody on a hold to transport them to the emergency room for their family to meet them there. So a 72-hour hold that you're discussing can be initiated at several different starting points. That, that hold, like you said, doesn't necessarily mean somebody is going inpatient. If they are, so they might have to be in an emergency room waiting until they can see that behavioral health person. Like we all know the systems in general are flooded, um, especially emergency rooms are going to have different levels of crisis, right? So 
what you're discussing there's like that triage has happened and there's been a determination that that person probably needs to be transported by ambulance to the inpatient unit and that hold is, is part of what helps get them there. Um, so I'm clarifying that because somebody yeah. might hear, oh, my kid was put on a hold at school and that means they're going. That That is actually what's done for them to safely get them from there to the emergency room for the eval. It can start again with the doctor, with the behavioral health person in the emergency room to transport. So there's there's different entry yeah. points to that. And I just want to clarify that for those who might be listening and um because I think sometimes we hear that 72 hour hold. And for some people that have been very concerned for their loved one, that's like a sense of safety. Like, oh, they're on a hold. Great. Now they're going to get everything they need. And that does that. There's so many different avenues that that can go. So I just want to make sure people feel educated with that. No, that's a good point. Because yeah, if they, right, the person who placed them on the hold, maybe in the community. So whether again, it's at school, it's, um, you know, a police officer, depending on the situation, um, yeah, a different clinician now making that evaluation and doing the assessment could determine either, yep, to, yes, this hold is valid, we're going to continue to work towards an inpatient level of care, or I can write another hold now, which is a new regulatory in Colorado starting January 1st of this year, that we can continue to write holds sort of back to back and as long as the patient's continuing to meet criteria. Um, or the clinician says, I actually think you're you're safe at this time, so I've evaluated you and I and I'm recommending that we drop that 72-hour hold. So all of those scenarios could happen. I think one thing you mentioned that's important and is true is when, when that hold is placed, so for the youth, for adults, at that time, in order to get to an inpatient facility, because most of our emergency departments, some of them do, but not all of them, don't have beds within that hospital um, where that patient can stay. It's usually a transport. It does have to be a transport by an ambulance. And that, again as a parent would be very scary to say, I can't take them in my own car. I can't go with them. Now, parents, no, no, no. You can always follow that ambulance to the facility. You can drive directly behind them to get there. You can be a part of the intake process or the assessment process of admitting them to that new hospital. But that involuntary 72 hour hold does require the ambulance transport. Um, and so that's just important to know. I think that's great information and we and so important. And I mean, a scary time for any loved one having to leave the person they care about behind, um, even if they're a part of that process. But we've talked about the highest level of cares is where we started this conversation around acute care specifically. But there are other levels of care that somebody might qualify for that isn't inpatient. Could we talk about that a little bit? Because the thing I want to level set for anybody that's listening that doesn't have experience and speak the language that you guys so beautifully do is there are many different stops along the way that somebody can receive care, you know, all the way from seeing a therapist to these acute levels of care. But there are many stops along the way that also are support systems um, for somebody that's struggling. Can we talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, and I think that's great because this is also, it feels newer in terms of, you know, knowing that we think about inpatient and we think about individual therapy once a month. And there's been so much that's been done, I think, in the mental health and behavioral health field to identify that there's there's an in-between. Um, and so that's sort of these other levels of care we're going to talk about. So I, I would say that the right after that inpatient level of care, which again, being the, sort of the highest level, least restrictive environment, there's something called 
partial hospitalization program. It has the word hospital in it, so people often associate that with an overnight stay in a, in a scary big building, but it's actually, it's not. It's considered, it is, you go home at night, you sleep usually, you know, at home in your bed with your family, but it is a five hour a day at minimum program. So five hours a day, five days a week. So Monday through Friday, usually for about two to three weeks where the individual is engaging in treatment. So again, when we think about hospitals, which is a 24 hour facility where you have a you know, nursing staff and you know, on site in a building 100% of the time, the next level is that well, we're going to recommend treatment for five hours a day, five days a week, but that you go home at night. And that the treatment model is really about group therapy. Um, so it's using certain, you know, DBT, CBT skills in group processing. So psychoeducational, um, also activity therapy based. And it's, it's really, when we think about group therapy in general, whether it's one hour a month or five hours a day, it's about building skill set and community and keeping that patient safe in that environment for the, that period of time. And we know that, you know, just like if we were to break our arm and we, or let's say we have surgery in the hospital. So we're having surgery on our arm. We stay overnight. No doctor is going to send you home and say, follow up with physical therapy, you know, in a couple months, maybe go once every two months and you'll be fine. Usually the step down from there is hey, you're going to go to physical therapy tomorrow, then you're going to schedule back-to-back -back appointments because going from the highest level of care, you have to have sort of a step down that's not so far away and far removed from what you just experienced. So when we think about if we go from an inpatient setting, we really highly recommend a step-down program to something like this PHP program. It doesn't mean you have to have inpatient though, Jason, to your point. You could be evaluated and say, you're not feeling actively suicidal at this time, but you've had thoughts. We're not concerned about your safety, but because it's been repetitive thoughts or because of your history or you're presenting problems, we're going to recommend you straight into this two-week intensive partial hospitalization program. And there are amazing, um, you know, two-week, three-week programs, some focused primarily on the behavioral health symptoms. There's also can be a combination of, you know, skill-based and substance use issues, um, and so it can start from that level of care. Well, and a couple of things just to add to that. Um, one, for our listeners who've maybe heard um, others talk about their experience at different levels of care, um, Sarah's saying partial hospitalization. You also might hear somebody say PHP. So that when we see, when you hear the term PHP, that's what partial hospitalization means. Um, I think an important piece here to focus on it is the group component and that there's evidence-based information to let us know when people are at this level of care, the significant benefit for them being connected to others who are also struggling. So an inpatient and PHP, and we'll talk about another level of care IOP in a minute, group, care, um, group therapy is really what has shown for people to have strong success because they're feeling less isolated. They're learning from others who are going through something by themselves. And I, I like to highlight that because I think there's times that parents might feel like, oh, I want my kid to have everything and I want them to have individualized attention and how come they're not meeting with somebody, right? And, and that's all coming from passion and love. But I wanna make sure people know that the, the reason these programs are developed with a group model and a group focus is, is based on evidence-based um, evidence information and wow. research. So I think that's important. Um, there are individual touch points, whether that be treatment planning, 
safety planning, potentially meeting with a medication provider. But um, I do feel like when people are concerned about their loved one and maybe they are in an emergency room and somebody they're like, I am so concerned. What do you mean? They're not going inpatient. And you're saying PHP, like I need them to see somebody individually. Again, all coming from passion and love and advocating for their kid, but understanding that a lot of these programs do have the group model because that is what has proven to be the most beneficial. Yeah. And you touched on something that's very, very, very important to mention. So a PHP program, you are required actually to be seen by a medical professional, so a provider who can prescribe medications, even though they are not required to prescribe. And it's important because when we think about models of care, it's not if there's a therapist who's providing the group therapy and then you're receiving support through medication management elsewhere. Sometimes we miss this coordination of care. And in this program, they offer the services of a medication provider at least to touch base and evaluate for medication needs all within that program. So again, it does not mean that that provider, that you know, nurse practitioner or psychiatrist would be prescribing your kiddo meds, but it means that there's a touch point. If, it, if that were to be appropriate and that were to be necessary, it would be managed within that program. So the therapist, the medication provider, oftentimes a nurse and the family. And I, I think in Colorado right now with the wait list, we see sometimes for psychiatrists, um, we, we really want to speak to trying to get all of those services in one place and as quickly as we can. Well, that's um, so what that's I love. Sorry to interrupt, but that's what I love yeah. about, about this, this model really is that it is for all intents and purposes, I don't mean to use the wrong language. It's kind of a one-stop yeah. to really right. say, Hey, what, what's going on is not working and we need to look at a different level of care. And there are some intervening supports at many touch points along the way to help your loved one if they are struggling. And one of them could be med management, not always, and doesn't have to be the case. But, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, I, in having been the leader of a, a nonprofit, specifically working with folks struggling with mental health for the better part of the last decade, you know, I see people have very differing attitudes about meds and the management of meds and like that being a mainstay for so many people finding sustainable recovery. What resistance or reluctance do you see from people that are kind of entering this for the first time or coming into these these rooms and, um, you know, that maybe are not pro-med? Yeah, and I think that I, I really, again, at the end of the day, recognize that we should not be prescribing medication to our youth without a conversation with the family members. And I think that just because of having a higher level of care doesn't always necessitate a, a new medication or the start of a medication. And, and for the most part, the hospitals that I'm familiar with, the hospitals that I know who work with the youth population, the, the practitioners there are, and this is PHP and inpatient and IOP, are always communicating with family members about their recommendations. Um, I think the I respect the resistance and I respect the, you know, let's try something new. I think what's important to understand is that at least at an inpatient setting, when you know your kiddo is safe, it's a really good opportunity to start a medication um, because we know that we're in an environment where we can, we can trial to see what's working. We also know though, a lot of the medications we're looking at for our youth don't happen, don't work overnight. And they actually have to be in the system for an extended period of time. So sometimes it's not appropriate place to start, um, that you want the med management to be sort of an ongoing 
you know, trial and error with someone who's going to see them on that ongoing basis, which would mean inpatient wouldn't be appropriate. So I've seen it go so many different ways, but I think most importantly is that we're seeing our providers at these levels of care have conversations with the parents before initiating anything, even if you know, by regulation, a 15-year-old can consent, but we're not often seeing that happen without those conversations being had when appropriate. So I think that's important to know that just because we're, you may have a kiddo entering these settings does not um, mean they're going to be starting a medication. Right. Well, and I think just to add to that, um, that parents should know to ask questions about the medication and when you might see different changes, because I think that Sometimes parents, like a medication might start and to your point that it might be two weeks in and they're like, we're not noticing a difference. I don't think it's working. You always want to make sure that you're educated on those timelines so that you can communicate with providers about changes in symptoms, because there can be significant things that occur if somebody starts um, a medication and then changes it or stops taking it because they don't think it's working without having a medical provider involved. Yeah. And those <laughs> conversations. Yeah, are so yeah. huge because you know your kiddos tried this medicine and it hasn't worked. That's also incredibly important information for a psychiatrist in these settings to be aware of because to be able to say, okay, we know we're not going to start this because you're letting me know that hasn't worked previously. Um, that information bringing to the table is going to be essential. Um, and, and to level set that there are there are so many meds and just yeah. one or two or three hasn't worked doesn't mean that there isn't something that will, but it is you know, again, I go back to this is not a one size fits all solution, which is why I think mental health has really struggled to be seen and viewed as physical health is because, you know, we might both have the same diagnosis and present very differently. And I think that's the thing that people need to understand. Like it is a process, you know, w once you get on the path, there, there are some pretty clear stops along the way, as I mentioned earlier, but you know, it is not a one size fits all solution. So just because yeah. it worked for Aunt Sally doesn't mean it's going to work for you. And I think it's really important to recognize, you know, and have grace for the journey of realizing it may take some tries. And just because this didn't work doesn't mean nothing will. Yeah. And I think that when we get in those more hopeless situations in life, it's really easy for us to make the assumption of that didn't work and nothing ever will. And this is never going to get better. And, and, and I do, I do want to say again, and having done this work for a long time now, you know, I, I see people at some of their very worst moments. And, you know, the thing that I can assuredly tell them is this will pass. And this, this, this does have the possibility to get better, but a lot of it is directly proportional to what are you willing to offer in return to help yourself. And I think yeah. that's a really important thing. And, you know, even as we're talking to parents here, like really being an advocate for your child and recognizing that your voice matters and you giving details that are important to anybody that you're interacting with in this journey of support definitely makes a difference. Yeah. And that's, you know, so, you know, we talk about one more level of care sort of after you know, the PHP was this IOP program. So it stands right. for intensive outpatient program. And, you know, for the most part, I would say, so at a minimum, it's a three hours of group a day, three days a week. Um, so instead of the five hours, five days a week, three three hours, three days. But we're also seeing um, a lot of these IOP programs being offered after school, right? So in the evening, so kids can attend school and go to the um, these programs in the evening. We're also seeing it expand, especially for youth, 
um, up to five days a week, because sometimes three days, again, we know that routine and consistency is incredibly helpful for our um, youth population. And so we are, a lot of IOPs are offering it five days a week now. Um, but also the important piece to keep in mind for that is that the parents, when we say to our kiddos, it's okay for you not to go to school for two weeks to focus on your mental health, to engage in that recommended level of care of a PHP program, I think that's one of my biggest takeaways because the, what I see more frequently than not is what well, school is a priority. We have to do school first. And I think a lot of these kids from what I'm, what I'm seeing are experiencing some of these um, pressures and symptoms and bullying from the school setting. And so to be able to focus on their mental health for two weeks um, is really important. A lot of these PHP programs are, uh, they have an education liaison. So one of the you know, they, they bring in and support the communication between the schools so they can get the homework assignments, they can stay up to date, and they usually offer a six hour, so five hours of treatment and a six hour to focus on schoolwork. And that's really, that's not across the board in PHP programs, but I've seen it happen for our kiddos a lot more than I've ever seen before. Which um, really helps somebody who's stressed, like about, about school, like maybe yeah. pull back, focus on getting getting the help that they need and really recognizing that you're not going to fall behind and be right. so far behind when you get back that's going to add additional stress. Right. You know, the thing that I again, the the podcast is called Nobody's Perfect and really that was built from this awareness of I had a previous um podcast called Teen Talk um from 2018 to 2021 and really in those 2019, sorry, from those conversations um the one thing that I recognized in talking with youth over and over was this thread of perfectionism, which we see woven into so many things that the need to excel in school or in extracurricular activities or to get into the right college or uh, to be concerned about your future or to please your parents. From your experience of doing this work and specifically working with youth, do you think, I know the system is making strides to show up to better support people who are struggling, do you think we are seeing higher need than we ever have before? And I know post-pandemic, many things have shifted, but kind of give us the state of the state and having done this a while, what are you seeing that has changed from where we were to where we are today? Oh, so, so many things. Yes, higher need. I would, I would 100% agree with that, but here's, here's the caveat. So I don't, I love the idea that you're saying, so we're, nobody's perfect. And we probably, you know, myself being 40 and having experienced, you know, probably similar feelings, but we were talking about it when I was a right. kid. So I'm grateful that we're talking about it. I'm grateful that the conversation has started and we're starting to identify this really important need for this youth population. I think the hard part is, yes, did things in my mind change after the pandemic and when all these kids were isolated at home and doing school remotely, you know, and not and lacking structure and lacking routine. Yes, we saw a huge increase in um, need for youth care, youth services, more dialogue, things like this, more, more knowledge about how to get the support that they need. Um, and I think Colorado especially struggles. And I think, you know, even some of the changes we're seeing from that, the regulatory side. So what are we doing? You know, how are we building services? How are we building systems? Colorado has really come to the forefront finally to say, the youth need and the youth services and what we need for this group has to change. Otherwise, we're, we're just not doing right by um, right. our population. And so I don't know that I can't say like has the pressure of these youth, has social media changed everything? Yeah, 
I mean, I definitely think I can't imagine what it would have been like to grow up in a world of, of Facebook and, you know, online bullying. And I, I just know that we need to do more, but I'm seeing strides. So again, some of the changes that we're starting to see are focused on what our youth need. Um, and it's going all the way up to the law and how we're going to be supporting that population. I mean, I think we, we are seeing, you know, for instance, more youth in emergency departments waiting for placement for inpatient beds than I think we've ever seen. Um, and, and I think that speaks to just how that population is feeling, how our youth are feeling um, day to day that they're getting to the point of not wanting to be alive or not wanting to um, be here and, and needing something more than what they're getting from their, their school systems. But I'm also, I know Amy knows a lot about this too, that the support we're offering in the schools. So we don't, again, we don't want it to go to this higher level of care if we can avoid it. We want to pr provide preventative work. We want to do something to stop that feeling from happening in the first place or for being able to access the right resources prior to feeling suicidal. Um, and that that's so important, I think, for all of us as clinicians, just what can we do to prevent it? Well, and to follow that up, I mean, really in seeing the escalation or the prevalence of this, I mean, it, for all intents and purposes, there there is more support than we've ever seen before across the spectrum yeah. from schools, all the way through the acute care settings that you're talking about. But, you know, the reality is from, from my limited view of um, there are more external factors that are being put upon our youth today, social media specifically, pressures in school, like the world is different that way yeah. um, than, than it perhaps was in different generations. The one follow-up question I have that builds upon the last one, you know, we're seeing and, and certainly want to underscore the things that youth are challenged with, we're seeing a tremendous uptick in substance use and abuse or misuse. Um, what are you seeing and, and, and do you believe that that is, you know, something that contributes or could contribute to poor mental health as well? Yes, I think there are um, two sides to it that, yes, when we see the substance use impact on youth, it is definitely going to impact their mental health. And I, I will say that we, we have not caught up in the services at the acute level of care, so that inpatient being able to provide substance use specific treatment. Um, but we are seeing it more frequently than at the inpatient setting that I've ever seen. So how are we responding to sort of integrate the treatment? Um, and I think, I don't, you know, it's interesting because I'm honestly just thinking through this now, has the access to be able to get, you know, have access to substance use to find what these kids are able to find these days, has that changed? I don't, I don't know, but it seems to have, it seems to be one of the coping skills that I'm finding a lot of our youth um, relying on when it comes to having high stress, high mental health needs, and then resorting to you know, substance use for coping. And again, has access changed? No, the drinking age still 21. Right. Like I don't, maybe in Colorado. I think what's changed though is drugs are different. You yeah. know, the the potency but, of the things that youth are partaking true. is different. And, and to your point that's about true. it being a coping mechanism for many, you know, you talk about, uh, you know, marijuana vaping specifically. I mean, we have youth that are on very high concentrates of THC all day long. And, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not labeling anybody or generalizing here, but I mean, I think it's important to realize that drugs in today's world are not the same as they were in the 60s, no. 70s, and 80s. Like the potency is very different. 
Yep. No, that's actually a great point. And I think what's hard to remember and make sense, I get it. We were all youth at one point is that our brains are still developing. Right. And so when we're, when we're sort of flooding them with a coping skill that unfortunately is going to adversely affect our mental health rather than ones that may actually in the long run, make us feel better than it, it, it just during those very important developmental years, we want to be able to, to target it quickly. Um, and like I said, I know that the, the state, so the state in Colorado is really trying to focus on whether it's inpatient facilities, PHP programs for youth to focus on a substance use component. There's a lot of support and funding out there to make sure that's integrated into these programs for our youth, because it's not, yeah, we're, we're not seeing, we're seeing it too combined at this point, not to address it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I have like um, several other questions and I'm, I'm also kind of aware of time here, but you had talked at the very beginning about um, kind of the stigma or what we've thought of an inpatient unit and how, how far we have come and what that looks like when, when somebody might have a loved one who is going um, into an inpatient facility. Can you just talk us through what that's like, because um, I know when you and I spoke, you were like, I can imagine as a parent how it might feel to be like, okay, here's my kiddo going behind a locked door. Like, talk us through what is happening on the other end and what does that look like? So if somebody does have a loved one who's accessing the highest level of care, which is inpatient, um, they might have a better understanding of, of the efforts that hospitals are making. I'm so glad you brought that back around because yeah, I could sort of fail to speak about it, you know, what it really looks like. Cause I think that is so, so, so important. And I, I spent a lot of time in sort of in my current role and in my previous role, speaking to parents when they're worried about their kids. And I'm always the first, I think, to step in to provide reassurance. Cause I, I wouldn't do this work if I didn't believe in what we were doing at the hospital setting for our kiddos. Um, so thank you. I would say um, once a you know, once they're admitted to that hospital setting. So while it can feel scary that they're potentially behind a locked door, why are they behind a locked door? Again, is the only reason we do that is just to make sure that we we know where your kiddos are at all time and that we're there to keep them safe. Um, it often, um, almost all, at least the hospitals that I've seen and that I've worked at, they have outdoor space. So don't think that when your kid is admitted to a hospital that they're never seeing the light of day. Um, you know, built into the inpatient structure for our youth, we try to make sure from the moment that kiddo wakes up, there is an activity in place or a structure to the day up until the moment they go to bed. It's one of the most important things that we know about our kiddos is having structure to the day. And so what that looks like is a schedule, Monday through so every day of the week from hour to hour, whether it's a meal time. Um, whether it's a group therapy session. So they will have at a minimum of four group sessions a day with either a licensed therapist or a uh, activity-based therapist. Um, there is um, outdoor time offered. There is journaling time. There's workbooks. There's always something almost on every single hour of the day um, that we, again, it's not mandatory, but it is certainly um, expected and highly encouraged that when you're at an inpatient facility, you're engaging in the day-to-day -day structure. And the purpose of that being that in those moments, we're there to help stabilize that patient, right? We're there to help say, we want to get you to a place that you feel safe. So you can go back and continue your treatment on that outpatient, that PHP or IOP or individual therapy um, basis. But again, as Amy stated earlier, it is based in group therapy and from what we know about the evidence base of groups. 
Um, the difference being at an inpatient facility that is staffed 24-7, always staffed by nursing. Um, it is, you see a provider, a doctor, either a psychiatrist or a um, nurse practitioner every single day that you're there, you meet face-to-face. -face. Um, you also have um, therapy, license, master's level um, that you're engaging with or um, folks who are engaged sort of like in milieu management. So are on staff in the building, interacting and leading these sessions uh, throughout the day. And so um, please know too that visitation is always a part um, and conversations with family members always a part of our patients' treatment, especially around our youth. Um, there is nothing that um, we want more than for family members to be engaged, right? We know that the success of our individuals, our youth especially, um, they're going to do better in their recovery when family members are part of the treatment. And that's from the moment that um, they start treatment, whether inpatient or not. So as family members say, okay, they're at the hospital, I'm just going to go, you know, go to work and go on with my day. And they're not a part of the day-to-day, -day. the harder it is for us to come up with an appropriate, safe aftercare plan that's going to work for the whole family. So we really encourage the, the conversations, the engagement with family members. Um, so usually they try, you know, staff at inpatient facilities try to contact um, family members every day, um, certainly within 24 hours of that person being admitted, they will speak to the psychiatric provider or the therapist. So uh, it's sort of reassuring that you're not sending your kiddo there to just sort of sit around because that wouldn't be effective treatment. Um, and there's no population more important to do that with than our youth. Well, and it sounds um, like the entire system is really designed to create this, what I'm going to call connection and community. Wow. And that also includes parents. So Let's get practical about this as we're sort of winding down this episode. You've given us so much valuable information. I'm I'm grateful for you being here. Um, if I'm a youth that's experiencing some sort of mental health crisis, like what should I do next? Yeah. So I, there's there's so many different avenues. Um, I, I would say that what I'm hearing, and you guys, you know, you might know from the other end of things too, that in that moment, if you're experiencing it, the the best and safest number one thing to do is tell somebody. So, and whether that's a phone call to an anonymous hotline, whether that's a friend and your mom or your dad, your family member is to tell someone not to hold it and be alone with it. And I think um, I, can't, I can't say that enough, how important it is to be able to openly share um, and, I, and to not be fearful of what does that mean is going to happen to me? Because like I've, I'm trying to really speak to the, the conversation and, the, and just trying to do what's best in that moment for that individual, but sharing it. Um, and the other thing, you know, I think one thing we didn't talk about, we really talked about the access to care being emergency rooms, but I, I really want this population to know too, because who wants to go to an emergency room? I, I, it's the last place I would ever want to find myself because it is busy, it's crowded, it doesn't feel supportive. So all of these inpatient hospitals um, actually, you can walk into their doors for the most part to be evaluated in, you're already in a behavioral health setting. You know that there are behavioral health staff there and they are considered walk-in centers when you're in crisis. They're not the same as walk-in centers. I should say that there are hospitals that you can walk into to be evaluated. And then there's also, you know, throughout Colorado and throughout the Denver metro area places called walk-in centers or crisis. What's the actual term, Amy, I'm forgetting, but there are places that you can just walk into that's not an emergency department. Um, but I, I think telling someone starts the conversation of whether or not that's the direction you need to head is to get somewhere to be evaluated, um, but just not keeping it to yourself. Yeah. 
And I think two pieces just to educate folks on um, the times that you, if you're deciding, am I going to go either to a walk-in center or walk in directly to a behavioral health hospital and emergency room, the limitations of a walk-in center or behavioral health hospital is if you also have um, significant medical issues that would need, need to be addressed. So if there's something going on for you that also um, is occurring medically, um, that is when you would want to choose an emergency room over the behavioral health center or a walk-in center. Um, because when you do show up there, if it's outside of their scope of what they're able to treat, because they don't treat the medical component, they then would help transport you or get you to an emergency room. So I just like to clarify that because some people have significant medical issues and can feel frustrated with the system when they're like, well, I went to the walk-in center. Why am I not going to the hospital? Right? So yeah. some of those pieces are all for us to make sure that we have the scope to treat what your needs are. And, you um, know, because we're not being specific about these locations to keep in mind that the, any anonymous number, and I, I'm going to make you pause this and actually let's give the number for the, the call or the, where they call because they will have those resources. So I don't know yeah. if we need to find that out but anyway that when you call the the hotline for suicide Colorado crisis line yeah. yes and you say I don't know what to do where do I go that should be provided to them in that phone call so so we can just pause and I'll okay. um, I'll interject that okay so, um so if you are feeling like I might need to access one of these centers and I'm not sure where I should go the best avenue for you is to potentially call 988 or the Colorado crisis hotline and they will help you navigate what your best entry point is. So they have the awareness of the best ways to navigate these systems and they're going to be happy to walk you through that. Um, so if you're, if you're feeling unsure of your next step or where you should go, um, accessing and calling either 988 or the Colorado crisis line would be um, a great starting point for you and your loved one. Absolutely. Thank you. You know, I know we're short on time here, um, but I I'd love to ask a follow-up question though, about if, if you're a parent that has a youth that's struggling, what's a, what's a next step for them? Oh, that's where I was going to. Oh, yeah. perfect. <laughs> so, and again, I don't know that there's always a one-stop shop. Like what is the right answer? I just want parents to feel reassured too, that it doesn't always have to be immediately emergency doesn't have to be crisis at this moment, it's an emergency, but if there's concern um, is to, you know, to start looking at getting your kiddo involved in some, the, some behavioral health treatment. So again, whether that's um, looking into individual therapy or like if it does feel crisis in that moment, having an evaluation to make it that determination, what's gonna be the best fit. Um, there are, there are so many different options, I would say, these days. Sometimes it is hard to know what's going to be best. And so the evaluations that a lot of our you know, licensed clinicians, whether you're a licensed clinician at an outpatient uh, mental health center or a licensed clinician who's at an inpatient hospital, these are folks who are trained in saying, what am I seeing? What do you need? And how can I help you make that recommendation? Right. Um, so I think there are a lot of different avenues. And I think an important piece to that I know I've heard in working with families in the community, and I know I've talked with both of you at separate times about this, is that when we are a parent who's maybe been so concerned and then our child is hospitalized, it can be like this, whew, okay, I know they're safe because they're in this facility and being treated. But recognizing that an inpatient stay is likely pretty short term. 
and you discussed the importance and what we know of the structure and, and exploring stepping down to a PHP or IOP so you don't go to this superstructure right back to your busy, chaotic life in school. But I think reminding parents, and, and Sarah, if you have any recommendations, while your kid is inpatient, what can you be doing to equip yourself with thinking of, okay, how am I going to structure my life when they're discharged to make sure that I'm helping stay consistent with their structure, stay consistent with what they need. That might mean you adjusting and having to work from home for a little bit or figuring out some of those pieces. So I just, if you have any recommendations for parents on what they can do while their loved one is an inpatient, in addition to communicating with the team, but how can they think of things to equip themselves to be prepared for when their loved one is discharged? I mean, I think that's exactly the things that you're speaking to, right? Is so what what am I as a parent, what may I have to adjust in my day-to-day -day life in order to get my kid to and from um, maybe some of these appointments? And also there's a lot of resources out there for parents. There's a lot of community support that parents need um, when they're thinking through my kiddos experiencing behavioral health and maybe being a parent who's not as familiar with what to look out for, um, what that means, how to have those conversations is to make sure they, they find their own community and own support groups and educating themselves on what that looks like. And I think it's also, I've heard a lot of parents say, Amy, on that note, you know, there's wait lists. How do I get my kid in? What am I supposed to do in the meantime? And I think um, that's where, you know, starting somewhere engaging in the system. So uh, individual therapy inpatient, a lot of our role as clinicians is to case management and resource, right? So we're, we're there to sort of commit through, we know of all of the IOP programs for youth in the metro area. Let us help you identify what those are and have you start calling and asking what's available, when it's available, what, what makes them differ, because it is hard as a parent what do we do? Do we just Google? You know, how do we know which one's the best? And I think that these people in our field are really trained and have been since day one to be also resources. Um, and I think that. this feels like a great place to plug NAMI as a resource. You know, NAMI is a national organization that yeah. has representation in every state. I mean, if you're here in Colorado specifically, I know one of the cornerstones of our programming is family support. So for anybody that's listening, you know, you can reach out and join a family support group, get some education courses around how to deal with some of these things. You know, all of our facilitators are trained, often people with living experience. I assure you, you will get connected to people who are on the path that you're on, albeit further ahead often, that will give you some really great um, uh, insights and, and practical tips that might help you navigate what comes next. That's right. And I think kids would love to see that from their, from their parents sometimes, right? Because I think they're, they're almost more accustomed to talking through this language and recognizing what mental health is for them that us as parents and our, a little bit of the older generation don't have. And so I think it's great um, to get yourself involved. Right. Jason, before I close out with our final question that we love to ask, is there anything else you wanted to ask? I don't think so. I really appreciate you being here. I think this is such an important conversation. I wish we didn't have to have conversations like this, but one of the things that I've observed in doing this work so long is the more that we can empower people with education about you know, practical tips that help them navigate kind of the ups and downs of life the better we all are. So thank you, Sarah, for joining us for this conversation, you know, but between the clinical experience that you and Amy both have, I mean, I feel like we've really had a thoughtful conversation around things that people need to know. So yeah. Thanks for creating a platform for, you know, to have something like this. I think it's so essential. So I'm 
I'm grateful yeah. to be a part of it. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, you and I can talk for hours. So I feel like I'm like, oh, well, I, I didn't touch half of my questions, but I do feel um, really grateful for the education that you provided and how you slowed this down and explained it for people. Um, because I think for some of us who've been in this world for so long, it's, it's a second language for us. And we don't always realize that we're speaking language that somebody doesn't understand um, or that they, if they haven't had to access it, they might not know. And I really value and appreciate you slowing this down so that our listeners can have a better understanding of what this means. So Sarah, we always end with asking our guests what nobody's perfect means to them. Can you share what perfect means to you? Hmm. Okay, I'm going to think, make sure I have a thoughtful response. Um, so, okay, so I think what's just going to stand out is pertinent to me. So I have, you know, two littles at home. Um, I have a 16-month-old boy and a three-and-a-half-year-old boy. And I can tell you, and I'm sure, you know, every parent has a great example of what makes their kids so different. Um, I have never seen anything in, so different for me when I'm seeing and thinking about my own children that... Um, people sort of are born and come out different and that I embracing what makes them different and what supports and makes them who they are is it has really it's really shining for me right now because I can speak to just everything about their personalities and temperament come to the table differently and so I I think just living in this world being able to embrace um this is what makes you you. This is what makes you you. And we all need something different in order to be um, successful, in order to be happy, in order to you know live a fulfilling life. And so I, I love to be able to be someone who fosters that, again, whether it be my own children or in the work that I do. So I guess that's what it means to me. What a beautiful conclusion. And on that note, thank you for being part of the Nobody's Perfect community dedicated to supporting, inspiring, and empowering youth and families. We hope you've enjoyed today's transformative conversation. And together, we're dismantling stigma and providing solutions for mental health and well-being challenges so everyone can thrive. Join us every other week on Cozy101.com slash imperfect or on your favorite streaming platform to continue embracing our shared human experience. And please follow us at Nobody's Perfect Community on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. I'm your host, Jason Hopkins, joined by my co-host, Amy Staley. It's been a pleasure having you here. Stay connected, stay inspired, and remember, nobody's perfect because perfection isn't real. Your story is. Until next time. <laughs>